The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. Yeah, I'll take the applause now because I probably won't get it at the end. So. Well, greetings in the name of the Lord. It's a privilege to be here with you. And it's always an honor and a privilege to, uh, to be able to bring God's word to you. Um, what we're talking about today is, is a very important subject, of course, and, and not an easy subject. Probably not a safe for work subject, but, but not a subject that we're safe to not discuss openly as believers. Uh, the main text today we'll be looking at is 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. If you want to turn there, we'll get there in a moment. And then we'll briefly consider 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11 um, toward the end. If you want to have your thumb on there or if you just want to have your iPad or iPhone ready to go. You know, I used to like be critical of when people would bring you know, their iPhones. And it's like, how do you know they're not just like on Facebook or something? And then my eyes got to a point where I couldn't bring a Bible unless I brought my glasses. And if I brought my glasses, I'd forget them or didn't. And so now I understand why you're on your phone. It's, it's not a bad way to read God's word if that works for you. First Thessalonians four, three to eight and first Corinthians six, nine to 11. In our public discourse, if you're awake at all, and I don't mean woke, I mean awake. In our public discourse, we regularly hear the word sexual used as an adjective. My wife and I saw, we got tricked into seeing a movie the other night that we'd seen before. And I, I don't know why we got tricked into seeing it again, but it's the old Johnny English. We saw the trailer and said, oh, that looks funny. I forgot I'd seen it. And now I'm, we remembered why I got 33% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's a PG-13 movie. But it has sexual innuendo throughout. That's one of the ways we hear the word sexual used as an adjective. Oftentimes, you can go to IMDb, Parents Guide, you know, if you do that, and sexual innuendo. In the 60s, for those of you that were alive then, and if you were alive, you weren't there, the word sexual liberation was a big buzzword. Again, sexual used as an adjective. Today, we're likely to hear sexual identity. Sexual harassment, and even worse, sexual assault. But we hear the word sexual used in our public discourse. You can't, you can't click on the Drudge Report. You can't turn on the news. You can't listen to a talk show without hearing this in our public discourse. We might even occasionally hear sexual ethics, sexual responsibility. But rarely... Do we hear sexual morality? Rarely do we hear that. And when I use the term sexual morality or morality in any sense, I am referring, of course, to an objective, binding, and unchanging law. Now, I realize that's not common sense or common knowledge in our public discourse, but that's what I'm referring to is an objective, binding, and unchanging. In other words... It's something you ought to do, 
and it's something that you ought to have done had you lived 100 or 200, 300 years ago in another country, in another part, another hemisphere. It's objective, binding, and unchanging. Sexual morality. Now, in the abstract, that involves a moral law, an oughtness. It, it, it presses upon your soul. You ought to do this. And in the abstract, it involves, whenever you have a moral law, you have a moral law giver. You have an authority. But in practice, in practice, what this really comes down to, to each and every person here this morning, is a fierce battle within your heart. There's two loves battling within your hearts. Now, I know it sounds like I'm about to launch into a Vince Gill song, but I'm not. There's two loves battling within your heart. St. Augustine, about 1,600 years ago, wrote a famous work called The City of God, and he wrote it as a defense of Christian morality in the wake of the fall of Rome. Has a lot of, a lot of uh, application to where we're at in, uh, in the West and in the United States today, at least where we unfortunately might be heading but St. Augustine wrote this book in, to, defend, to defend Christian morality. He talked about these two loves. Now, this can refer to within your own heart or just speaking more uh, globally of people in general. And he said this, two loves have made two cities. Two loves have made two cities. Love of self to the despising of God has made the city of the world. Love of God to the despising of self has made the city of God. So you have two loves, the love of self and the love of God, and they produce certain results. And that's the battle. That's the battle. And that's the battle we have in our own hearts, the love of self versus the love of God. The love of self is a value system that, that rejects God at the center. You could have whatever you want. You could come to church. You can even give lip service to the Bible. You could be a Buddhist. You could be a Confucian. You could be a Muslim. You could be a nominal Christian, but God is not at the center. That's the love of self. It's a value system built without God at the center of reality. And in terms of our topic today, that means sexuality on our terms. Now, your terms might be very good, might be very ethical. You may believe in monogamy. You may believe in, in saving uh, sexuality until you're married. It may be very ethical, but it's still your terms. Or it may be anarchy, like we have in much of our world today. But it's sexuality in our terms. The love of God, in contrast, is a value system that honors Christ as Lord. It doesn't just give lip service to the idea that there's a God, oh, and I think he had a son named Jesus, and he might even have been raised from the dead, but honors Christ as Lord of your life. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the love of God. And that means, translates into today's subject, sexuality on God's terms. Well, you might be asking why this topic. Well, let me give you a couple reasons before we look briefly at 1 Thessalonians, why this topic. Well, one is the personal angle. This topic is a wonderful revealer of hearts. Which do you prefer? Sexuality on your terms? Or sexuality 
on God's terms. In fact, Augustine went on to say when he described these two loves, he said, let a man consult himself to see what he loves and he will find which city he belongs to. This topic can be a a great revealer of where you're at vis-a-vis God. So there's personal reasons to discuss this topic. And those may be very existentially real to you this morning here. There's generational, there's a generational reason why we should consider this topic. Young people are abandoning the faith of their parents. Now I'm going to give some advice, direct advice to young people, particularly, I think it applies to all of us, but particularly to young people at the end. So I hope you'll pay attention and still be awake at that time. But young people even though many of them come back, you know, after they have children and we know the story, but young people are abandoning their faith. And I think there's two primary reasons why young people abandon their faith. Number one is a failure to adequately or properly grapple with the so-called problem of evil. Bad things happen. Bad things happened to me. My parents were divorced. I was abused. And these are terrible things. And these are, these are bad things, but it's, What I like to say is their theology can't survive a tragedy. They don't understand how to grapple with the issue of suffering and evil in the world, especially when it hits home, literally hits home. And so oftentimes when they go off to college and there's, there's always a professor that's willing to give them some kind of reason for why if God exists, he can't be all powerful. He can't be all good. He can't be the God of the Bible because of evil and suffering. And oftentimes young people leave the faith because of that. But a second reason, and one that more applies to us this morning, is because of a self, a desire for self-gratification and a disordered sexuality of one kind or another. It may be what we consider to be quote-unquote normal sexuality, or it may be of a more disordered sort that we see more prevalent in today's world. But it's a desire for self-gratification in a, in a disordered sexuality. And when I say disordered, I mean contrary to what God has told us in his word. And we'll see what that is in a moment. Listen to this quote. People are openly doing things that a generation ago were unthinkable. Or at least among the most guarded of personal secrets. That was written in 1973 in Playboy magazine. And think where we are today, 35 years later. Now, what happens when we, we hunger and desire to self-gratify in terms of the, this powerful gift that God has given us in sexuality is that we begin to wish God out of existence or relevance. It's a famous quote by Aldous Huxley, the, the author of Brave New World, who said that basically we developed our philosophy of nihil, nihilism, nothingness, because we objected to Christian morality. His entire worldview, which has affected millions of people, was developed simply because we wanted sex on our terms, and therefore God could not exist. On college, student, on college campuses today, there are 3 million registered, young, mostly young women, who have, they're, they're known as sugar baby students. These are young women that have connected with older, wealthy men who they, and they sell themselves, essentially, this is legalized prostitution, 
in order to help pay down their enormous student debt. This is going on today on our college campuses. The so-called hookup culture, which is so destructive, especially of young women. So there's generational reasons why we have to talk about this topic. And then cultural reasons. The sexual ethics of the so-called city of man is a big reason for the social breakdown that we see today. No, no time to get into it, but you might have heard about the whole controversy surrounding Karen Pence this past week. Surprise, surprise, a Christian school actually has Christian convictions about Christian things. And it's become like, you know, this wonderment that, well, there's people that actually believe this stuff and become a big controversy. And you see this clash between the city of man, so to speak, and the city of God in the news every day. But the sexual ethics of secularism or the city of man has also, I think, resulted in so much of the, the, the distrust between men and women. We don't know what a man is anymore. We don't know what a woman is anymore. We don't know how to act. It's like uh, if, you, if you're familiar with the comedian Jim Gaffigan, he talks about crabs, like the way crabs walk. It's like two people that really don't want to meet each other. And that's the way, I mean, men and women are, are it's like we don't know how to, re, how do we relate anymore? And there's this distrust between men and women. And much of this is a direct result of the sexual ethic of secularism that came to fruition in the 60s in this country. Divorce fatherlessness, all a direct result that we will have this on our terms. And of course, today being Sanctity of Life Sunday, we should at least mention the topic of abortion. In 2015, and these these statistics don't change much year to year, 2015, unmarried women accounted for 86% of all abortions performed in the United States. 86% of all abortions were were conducted on women who were not married. That means 785,000 human beings lost their lives in 2015, and 785,000 human beings will lose their lives in 2019 because we want sexuality on our terms. There's a reason why this topic must be addressed. Well, that's a long-winded way to get to 1 Thessalonians 4. I'm not going to go through this line by line, but just want to highlight some things in this passage that I think would be um, important for us to consider this morning. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3 to 8. This is a very warm epistle that the Apostle Paul writes to these faithful believers. In fact, he starts off with that triad of these. They're known for their faith, their hope, and their love. And it's a very warm, loving epistle. But it's the Word of God. And he he still has some hard things to say to them. They're not Corinth, but yet they still grapple with this issue as we do today. Verse 3, you want to know God's will? It's not a needle in a haystack. It's right here. So listen up. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What does that mean? Well, it means a lot of things, but this is what it means here in this passage and this morning. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress his bro- or wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in these things. As we told you beforehand, 
and solemnly warns you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. One of the most direct statements that you'll find in the New Testament on the will of God with regards to this important topic. Now, one way to understand the, in fact, probably the most basic way to understand the entire storyline of the Bible. And if you're, if you're new to the faith, if you're new to understanding the Bible, this is, I think, I find this very helpful. It's simplistic, but it's helpful. The Bible story is essentially a story of creation, a fall, and redemption. Creation, a fall, in which somehow that, that creation is marred, but yet God didn't leave it like that. There's a redemption. So creation, you have a, you have a pattern. You have a plan. There's a designer who designs something. There's a pattern. There's a plan. What, then you have a fall, some kind of deviation from that pattern or the plan. There's a, there's a corruption there's a distortion of the way things were meant to be. And then you have a redemption. There's a repairing going on. There's a restoration going on. It's in the present, and it's still yet to be. So creation, fall, and redemption. It's a, it's a simple way to just simply understand the major storyline of the Bible. And I think we see those elements right here in this text. In terms of creation, we see God, the creator. We see that God, the creator, has a, a will. He has a moral law. He has a plan. He has a design. We see he has authority. And we see that he has authority to punish. He's an avenger in these things. So we see creation. We see fall right here in this passage Note some of these words in the text. Immorality, transgression, ignorance, rebellion, wrongdoing, offending a brother. These are all fruit of the fall of man. And this is the city of man. This is the love of self right there. But thank God, praise Jesus we see redemption in this passage as well. We see that repair. We see that restoration. Words like this, sanctification. That's a redemption word. Holiness. Honor. The knowledge of God. No longer ignorant, but we've, we've gained the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then I think what is tremendously important for us today, another redemption word that we see in this text is right there in verse 8 at the end, the indwelling Holy Spirit. He gives his Holy Spirit to you. But those are words that describe the city of God, the love of God. So we see this clash. So what we're going to do for our remaining few moments is just look at each one of these these segments, if you will, these movements in Scripture and how they apply to our topic today, creation, fall redemption. And we'll go through them rather briefly. You may or may not be able to follow along on a screen. I take full blame for changing things up at the last minute. I gave them a, I gave Jimmy a, an outline with some notes. And then I, um, I invoked preacher privilege and changed everything up at the last minute. And so if you have trouble following along, it's a hundred percent my fault, but that'll be fine. I think it's simple enough that we can, 
we can understand what God wants us to understand this morning. So creation, simple point. Human sexuality is God's idea. Human sexuality is God's idea. And we might even add this. Human sexuality is God's good idea. The creator didn't have any bad ideas. See what Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, those that wanted to deny food and marriage as, as a way of showing how holy they were and how much holier they were than others. And he says, nothing is to be rejected because God has created these things and they're good if they're received with thanksgiving and prayer. So human sexuality is God's good idea. And you don't need to turn there because I'm going to assume that all these verses are familiar. Genesis 1.1, the, the, that is familiar, right? Genesis 1.1, okay, all right. So we're all tracking together here. The importance of Genesis 1.1 is not just the beginning of the Bible, but the, the imperative to worship, you don't have to go any further than Genesis 1.1 to see the imperative to worship. I would hope you would agree with one thing that I'm about to say, and hopefully the second. One, you're not the creator. You're a creature. Number two, there is a creator. And that distinction is what imposes on you the imperative, the duty to worship. The creator-creature distinction, Genesis 1-1. It automatically and immediately puts us in a place of humility before God. You move down in Genesis 1 to verses 26 to 28, and you see the creation of man. And let me just note three truths that are, that are worth considering very quickly about the creation of man. Man was created by God. That gives you tremendous value. Don't let anybody tell you you don't have any value, or your value is contingent on what another human being thinks about you. Those, what other people think about you is not unimportant. I don't think it's, I think there's a little bit of arrogance that runs, I don't care what anybody thinks about me. Well, sometimes you need to care what other people think about you, but your ultimate value doesn't come from that. Because then you'd be a mixed bag at best, because some people are going to hate you and some people are going to love you. And what does that have to do with your psychology if you're totally based in that? But you were created by God, therefore you have immense value. Just read Psalm 8. Secondly, you were created for God. It means you have purpose. Every single person here has purpose. You're created for purpose. You were created to worship, to honor, to enjoy God forever. That's why he created you. Created by God, created for God, and responsible to God. You're accountable to your maker. And Paul wrote this to the Corinthians. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due. Now catch this. For what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. One of the interesting things about today's world is it's very similar in a lot of ways to the world in which the New Testament was written. In the world in which the New Testament was written, there was this in the Greco-Roman world, there was this radical separation of the body and the soul so that the body might have been seen as a cage in which the soul longed to be freed from. So therefore, I would, I would whip myself. I would deny myself. It was called asceticism in order to punish my body because it was really about the soul. Or you had the Corinthian model that also had this radical dualism between body and soul. So what I do in the body doesn't matter has no effect on my soul. I can do whatever I want with my body. And that's, neither of those is the biblical view. The biblical view is a soul-body unity. And what you do in the body matters for the soul, and what you do in the soul matters for the body. 
We know today how clearly the effects of stress and worry and anxiety have on your body. And I think we all know what things we do in the body, how they affect our soul. So we are accountable to God, and we will give an account for what we have done in the body, the creation of man. Genesis 2, we see the particular creation of marriage, the male and female union, the the two shall become one flesh. And Jesus referred to this in Matthew 19. Again, we see kind of a threefold purpose in marriage. We see the, the unitive purpose, unity. The unitive purpose, the two shall become one flesh. That's one of the purposes of marriage, that there be, a, there be a unity between the man and the woman. There's the procreative purpose in marriage. Be fruitful and multiply. That doesn't mean that every individual marriage is fruitful. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that your marriage is any less of a marriage. If you are unable to bear children or for some reason can't have children or don't want children, or maybe you married too late, doesn't mean that. It just means marriage in general is unitive, it's procreative, and it's recreative. Those are the three purposes of marriage. Unitive, procreative, recreative. Song of Solomon. Now, what we have today is a singular obsession with that final purpose, the recreative parts, divorced from the unitive and procreative, and we'll say more about that in just a moment. But the point I want us to get here is that God as creator, with a design, with a purpose, with a plan, created marriage. And therefore, God is pro-sex. Proverbs 5, be intoxicated with her love. And he, Solomon explicitly contrasts that with a man not finding pleasure in an adulteress. He's talking about his wife be intoxicated with her love. This is, this is right there in the scripture. And then in our passage today, 1 Thessalonians 4, this is the will of God. He created marriage, therefore God is pro-sex. And marriage is the presumed, in fact, sanctified context of sexual intimacy. Writer to Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, husband and wife, do not deprive one another. It's the presumed and sanctified context of sexual intimacy. There's a quote that's been wrongly attributed to G.K. Chesterton. It was actually John F. Kennedy paraphrasing G.K. Chesterton, so we'll let it pass. And never, it's a money quote, so no matter who you want to attribute to, attribute it to me. I'll take credit for it. Whenever you remove any fence, always pause long enough to ask yourself, why was it put there in the first place? Whenever you remove any fence, always pause long enough to ask yourself, why was it put there in the first place? What's the biblical fence? In singleness, it's chastity. That's an old school world. You probably think of like having, you know, uh, I don't know what they even call them, like in 1800s that they would put young ladies in to make sure they remained chaste. That's not what... Okay, yeah, that makes sense, right? Maybe we need to go back to the 1800s. No, I'm just, I'm just teasing. But that's the, that's the scriptural prescription. In singleness, we are to abstain from sexual, immor- uh, sexual activity if we're single. 
and singleness, chastity, and marriage fidelity. It's that simple, folks. It's not easy because these are strong powers that God has given to us. But it's that simple. In singleness, chastity, and marriage fidelity. Now, just for a second, let's consider what is the connection to this particular Sunday, the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Listen to this quote. The essential moral problem with non-marital sexual intercourse is that it performs a life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent, thus violating its intrinsic meaning. And there's lots of damage that results when we take a life-uniting act without a life-uniting intent. We have fractured souls. We have often diseased bodies. And in 2019, there will be 785,000 human beings that will lose their lives and never see the light outside the womb because we have removed a life-uniting act from its life-uniting intent. So that leads us to point two, the fall. The second movement we see in the story of the Bible, the fall. The point here is that mankind has distorted or corrupted God's gifts, including sexuality. We might even say especially sexuality, at least in certain generations. And the results are devastating. We've distorted or corrupted God's gifts. The essence of the fall, when you just read Genesis 3 and you see the tempter coming to Eve and, and, and the way Adam and Eve processed this whole thing is, you know what? We're going to decide what's good and evil. We're going to decide that. Independent of God, we're going to decide that. And that's where we're at. That much has not really changed, if not for the interjection of God. We don't believe in a God of deism that just wound up the world and left it. This is a God that intervenes in the world. Praise him for that. But that's essentially where we're at. That's the battle you have today. I'll decide. Now, I may, there may be some things in here I like, some things that agree with me. But that's the essence of the fall. We will decide what's good and evil. Now, in terms of how this affected the human race sexually, we don't have to go further than Genesis 4, the very next chapter, and we see the first polygamist in Lamech. We don't have to go for too much further. A few chapters later, we see Sodom. We see Lot having incestuous relations with his two daughters. We see Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. We see the book of Judges. We see David, a man after God's own heart. Tremendous failures in the area of sexuality. We see Solomon. What we see in the Bible in terms of sexuality, we see polygamy. We see homosexuality. We see incest. We see rape. We see adultery. And in fact, we see child sacrifice. So, Biblical sexuality, when you hear that term, biblical sexuality, we don't mean what's merely described in the pages of Scripture. Because there's lots of bad things described in the pages of Scripture. Biblical sexuality means what is prescribed in the pages of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4. Now, human autonomy, 
with regards to good and evil, in other words, will decide independent of God, leads us to have very deeply flawed ideas about God and about man and about life. In other words, worldviews, worldviews that are distorted from reality. Just read Romans 1. It's a great place to start when you see these flawed ideas about God as a result of our suppression of the truth. And ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. Now, C.S. Lewis, writing in a, in a, a different generation in his own country, but one that's it's kind of where we're at today, more or less, drawing a distinction between the Christian and what he calls the materialist. The materialist is, is a, just use the word atheist, okay, for simplicity. C.S. Lewis said this, the Christian and the materialist hold different beliefs about the universe. They can't both be right. Either there's a God or there's not a God. Either, either uh, ultimate reality is reducible down to matter or ultimate reality is found in a triune God. They can't both be right. One is right. They might both be wrong. We could both be wrong, but we can't both be right. And he said this, the one who is wrong will act in a way which simply doesn't fit the real universe. So without God at the center of reality, there's no design, there's no plan. That means we have human norms. That mean, in other words, what's going to be right and wrong is when we decide either individually, like, a, like an individual relativism, or maybe a cultural relativism, or by sheer state power. Without God at the center. The state is God. Something fills the void. And therefore, we have sexuality as desired. Just, I don't recommend you watch it, but sex in the city. Sex in the city of man. And this leads to damaged lives and regret. In fact, the undercurrent of that entire show is rather interesting because what it shows is the damage caused by women trying to act like bad men. Instead of women acting like bad men, we need bad men to act like good men. Without God at the center, this is what happens. With God at the center, then we have a grand design. We have a plan. We have a purpose. We have now divine norms, God's rules, and we have sexuality as intended. And you'll forgive me the cuteness here, but now we have sex and the city of God to kind of do a mashup of Augustine and 21st century TV. And the result, more often than not, when we follow God's ways, are blessing, peace. A biblical word for peace is shalom, a wholeness, instead of the fracturing that takes place in life. Now, sex on our terms has some particular scourges in our day, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. You can, you can find this many different places, and I'm, I want to move on, but Two particular scourges in our day. Pornography. Instant, nearly unfettered access to pornography. It's not like the old days where you had to embarrassingly, you know, could you reach behind the counter? Now, everybody here, everybody here, it's, it's incredible when you think about it. It's a scourge. 35% of all internet downloads are, are pornographic. 12% of all the websites, and these statistics are a couple years dated, it's probably worse, but they're, they're not going to be much off. 12% of all websites, 40 million Americans are regular visitors 
to pornographic sites. And you know what the number one day is? Sunday. Women, you're not exempt. One third of all pornography consumers are women. And the average age of exposure is 11. Men who start viewing pornography after they are married are twice as likely to divorce. We now know that it shrinks the brain, it reduces neural activity, and it's addictive. It's a release of dopamine, which means you have to have more and more and more and harder and harder and harder. It's like any addiction. It often leads to violence, sex trafficking, and even prostitution. That's a particular scourge in our day. Another scourge in our day as a result of the fall is sex as recreative only. Remember, said there was three purposes in, the, in God's plan, the unitive, the procreative, and the recreative. We've taken one and we said, that's enough for us. In, a, in addition to the toll on human life, the abortion issue, the apostle Paul said this, without knowing modern chemistry, he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Did you know that your body makes a voluntary commitment, involuntary commitment, I should say, when you engage in sexual, sexual practices? Your body makes an involuntary chemical commitment. One has said this, your body makes a promise whether or not you make a promise. Particularly in women, it's the release of oxytocin, what's called the love hormone. In men, it's the release of vasopressin, called the bonding or the monogamy molecule. Your body is making a promise whether or not you mean to. One of my favorite authors, Jay Buzicheski, a professor at UT, there, there, is, a, there is hope at University of Texas. <laughs> he said this, sex is like applying adhesive tape. Promiscuity is like ripping the tape off again. You rip it off, rip it off, rip it off. Eventually, the tape can't stick anymore. Is it any wonder that at many of our top universities in the United States, the top two, the most two prescribed drugs are birth control pills and antidepressants? Is it any wonder It's a fact that men lose interest in marriage when women give sex without prior commitment. It's a fact. It is also a fact that the more non-marital sexual partners a person has, the lower chances of marital stability they have. In other words, unchastity leads to infidelity. When Solomon was dedicating the temple... He said, there is no one who does not sin. The psalmist said this. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? If God was counting up without any hope of redemption, your iniquities, my iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Praise God for redemption, the final move in the Bible story. Redemption. In Jesus Christ, God forgives our debt and gradually transforms our character. 
1 Corinthians 6, 9, 11. We'll just very briefly read the passage and consider a couple things. In Jesus Christ, God forgives our debt. Whether small or large, it's unpayable. And he gradually transforms our character. 1 Corinthians 6, we'll just jump right into verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. Now, let me just a parenthetical note about that. This is, this is a version of the Greek word pornea, which basically is an umbrella term that covers every type of sexual activity outside of the marriage between a man and a woman. Neither the sexually immoral, immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He says, do not be deceived. God is immutably and eternally holy and just. This is God. We can't change him. We can't say, you know what, God... Get with the 21st century. It's like the, uh, the Babylon Bee may be the best news source we have today. And there's a Babylon Bee from a, a year or so ago that, you know, progressive Christian updating her, her Bible app to see if God has changed his stance on, on sexuality yet. No, he's eternally and immutably holy and just. Again, Hebrews 13, 4, quoting from the Holman, says, Marriage must be respected by all, and the marriage bed kept undefiled, because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. That's God's word. Indeed, when we get to Revelation 22, when we think it's all a happy ending, it is for the redeemed. But what he says in Revelation 22 is outside. You don't want to be outside. You don't want to be outside the gates of the new Jerusalem. That's perdition. That's that's an image of hell. Outside, he said, are dogs. Dog lovers don't fear. This is not your dog, okay? This is not dogs in general. Different kind of dog here. Sorcerers and the sexually immoral. And everyone who loves and practices falsehood. God's serious about this. And he said to the Corinthians, the most messed up group of people you could probably ever meet, such were some of you. In other words, he's saying some of you were under God's judgment that had your path not been somehow intervened with, you'd have been outside. And then we run into one of those but gods, the two best words in the Bible, but God. He doesn't use the word God here the way he does like in Ephesians 2, but you might as well insert it in your mind. He says, but you were washed. Who did the washing? God. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. You were washed. You were given new spiritual life. Some of you may have tragic failures in your life with regards to sexuality but you came to christ and maybe today you you have you've never been liberated from the 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 feeling of dirtiness and today is the day that you can either be washed or be reminded that you've been washed by the word of god and by the holy spirit of god you were washed and then i'm going to take the next two in reverse order you were justified 
That is, you were acquitted of eternal penalty. There are two kinds of people that approach God. Two kinds of people that bother to approach God. One is the Pharisee. Comes to church, wears the right clothes, writes his checks out legibly and makes sure everybody sees him, putting it in the basket, kind of lives a righteous life, and looks around at you and says, thank you, God, I'm not like them. I thank you, God, I'm not like that wretch sitting next to me. Oh, greeting time, hi. They, they try to approach God. I thank you, God. Boldly walk into the temple. I belong here. And then there's a tax collector. If you're not familiar with the tax collector in the Bible, they're not liked people. They're despised. Any IRS agents in here? Wouldn't even lift up his eyes, would not approach the temple, beat his breast, and said, have mercy on me, God. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? Have mercy on me. You were justified. Jesus said, which one went back justified? Not the Pharisee, the tax collector. Where are you today? Humility is the key to the Christian life, by the way, folks. This is for free. Humility, which we see in the tax collector, is the key to the Christian life. And I can prove this very easily. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. You need grace. You must have grace. By grace you are saved. By grace you live. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humility, and particularly humility before God, is the key to the Christian life. You were washed. You were justified. You were sanctified. You were set apart distinctly. For a holy purpose, for a positive holy purpose. We always view holiness as something negative. It's not something negative. It, yeah, it sure means you withdraw from certain things, but it's a positive term because God is holy. So it means you're positively becoming more like him and you were set apart for that. He says you were set apart for God. In other words, we are as holy ones. He has taken you out of that fallen, diseased world and said, you're now mine. That's the sanctification that we, that's happened. But there's a sanctification that's happening today. You are being set apart for God. This is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what he means in 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God, your sanctification. You are being set apart for God. The transformation of your character God has not called us for impurity. He's called us for holiness. Abstain from sexual immorality, he says, and embrace sexual morality. It's no more popular today than it was then. But Paul said, whoever disregards this, you're not disregarding the preacher. You're not disregarding the pastor. You're disregarding God. Augustine said, let a man consult himself to see what he loves, and he will find which city he belongs to. Which city do you prefer? You prefer the city of God with God at the center, sexuality on his terms, or do you prefer the city of man with you at the center? And whether your terms are good, bad, or indifferent, they're, on, they're still your terms. And thankfully, this is not just raw moralism 
He gives his Holy Spirit to us. He gives his Holy Spirit to us. Paul said, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, not by working really hard, doesn't, you are to work, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Well, I want to give some very quick concluding advice as promised to young people, especially to young people, I should say, and we'll wrap up with this. I just want to give you some things that you need to think about in terms of this topic, and we'll go through these very quickly and we'll conclude. Number one, you need to think critically about the message that you're receiving today from the world, the sex on our terms. You need to think more critically about it. Instead of just drinking it in, saying, oh, yeah, that's... Ask yourself, God put a fence there. Why is that fence there? Before I go remove that fence, why was it put there? Think critically before you just embrace. Because I'm telling you, the message of the world is going to sound very good to you because it's going to, it's going to be like, that's what I desire. That's what I want. And it's a lie. Think critically. Number two, especially young people, study apologetics. That doesn't mean study how to say you're sorry. You need to do that too. People don't like to say they're sorry anymore. Or it's always a sorry but kind of thing. But study apologetics, which means apologetics is a, is a, comes from a Greek word. It means giving a defense of something. And in this case, it's giving a defense of Christianity. Study apologetics. Why am I saying that? Because you need to know whether Christianity is true or not. Because everything I just said and everything that Joe says and everything that every other preacher says who comes in the name of Christ is meaningless if Jesus is still in that grave. Is it even true? Does God exist? Is the Bible reliable? Is it infallible? Is it errant? Is this the word of God or not? Did Jesus exist? Was he born of a virgin? Did he die on a cross? Was he raised again on the third day? If that's not just something that I feel in my heart, if it's true, you're bound. If it's false, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. Study apologetics. Let me give you some names, and this is just a partial list. Read anything that these authors write. Norm Geisler, Robbie Zacharias, John Lennox, C.S. Lewis, Tim Keller, J. Warner Wallace, J. Bujacheski, Nancy Piercy. Could go on and on and on. We have such a wealth at our fingertips. There's no excuse for us not knowing the truth about whether Christianity is true or not. So think critically, study apologetics. Number three, be teachable, young, especially young people. Be teachable and be accountable to your parents, to your friends. Choose friends wisely to your spiritual leaders. They may see something in you. Number four, resist the temptation to lower the standard. It's easy to despair, especially young people. You have godly standards. You really want to do things right, and you really want a spouse someday. And it's easy to despair that there is just simply nobody. Do not give up and do not lower the standard. You know, I would love when I play basketball to say, you know, that 10-foot goal is so far out of 
we're going to make a five-foot. I could possibly dunk a five-foot goal. Two hands. But I'm lowering the standard. Don't lower the standard. Keep the standard. God has somebody. Elijah said, Lord, I'm the only one. He said, I've reserved 7,000 people that have not bowed the knee to Baal. God has somebody somewhere with the same standards that you have if your standards are God's. Learn to walk by the Spirit, number five. It's not just, I'm going to try really hard because you're going to fail. Learn to walk by the Spirit. And remember 1 John 1, 9. If you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness because you're going to fail. And you need to know there's forgiveness. You need to know you can have a fresh start. It's like when, your car, when you wash your car. You ever notice when you wash your car, you avoid, you'll, you'll get in a wreck to avoid a puddle. <laughs> but then once it starts getting dirty, you don't care much. And whatever dirt's on there, you don't even notice it anymore. And that's the way our souls are. Keep them clean. Because once they get dirty, you start caring less and less about your soul. Remember 1 John 1, 9, that he forgives our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. And then finally, live as one who knows God. Paul told the Thessalonians, don't live as those that don't know God. Live as one who knows God. And we have a beautiful example of this in Joseph in the Old Testament. Read about him. All you have to do for, for this sake is just read Genesis 37 and Genesis 39. And if you're really adventurous, read Genesis 38 to see a contrast there with his older brother Judah. Joseph in the Old Testament. I'm assuming you know the story and if you don't read it. But he was victimized by his own family. He was a victim. And when you become a victim, you oftentimes think you therefore have a license to sin. Especially in our day and age, it seems to be, it gives me some kind of power now to do, to exert my will. He was a victim of injustice. Three times, actually, a victim of injustice. He was successful at a very young age. He was 17 when he was sold by his brothers as a slave, and he was immediately successful. And when you're successful, particularly at a very young age, you have an inflated sense of importance you have a sense of invincibility and you have a, a, a pride about you. That's, you're not seasoned. You've experienced success a little too young and this can cause some problems. He had a position of authority. Oh, we know all about that today, right? How positions of authority can lead people, particularly men, to do things that they should not do. He had a position of authority and trust. And on top of that, he was a very handsome man and he had opportunity. He actually had a beautiful woman chasing him down. Yet, this Joseph literally fled. The New Testament tells us to flee immorality. You want a picture of literally, physically fleeing immorality. It's Joseph, Genesis 39. Because he had integrity, because he feared God, and because he resolved in his heart that he would not sin against God. And that's what you need. But folks, let me warn you, it cost him. It cost him. He was actually imprisoned on false charges. It'll cost you today to stand up and have standards that are like God's. It'll cost you. Yet right after it cost him, and he's thrown in prison, we see this. The Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. 
I know God will do that with you as well. It'll cost you to be like Joseph, but he will be with you and he will show you steadfast love. I want to turn it over to the pastor in two seconds. I just want to pray as we close here. And I just want to pray with two people in mind here, two groups of people, I should say, to the single. Be any number of reasons why you're single, and that's, that's not my business this morning. But God's word to you is chastity and singleness, whether that's as a result of divorce, whether you've never entered into marriage before, chastity. And if that's your, your, if your will aligns with God, my prayer is for you that he, you would walk by his spirit and have that power. If you have failed in that regard, I pray that you would find repentance and forgiveness. If you are married, God's word to you is simple. Be faithful. Be faithful to your spouse. And if, that, if your will aligns with God's, then I pray that you would have the power by his spirit to continue day by day. If you've failed in that, especially if it's not known, that's going to be tricky. But your sin will find you out. Today could be the day that you unburden yourself of that guilt and make things right. Sexuality on God's terms. It's a powerful gift that God has given us. And when used properly in accordance with its will, it's one of the most beautiful things that God has given to human beings. When it's misused, it's one of the most destructive. So make things right with the Lord today, whatever that is. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of the Holy Spirit, without which we are all undone. If you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.